Amen, amen. Well, this is an interesting title that I, 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 I try to find catchy titles for my sermons. I don't know why. But I like this one. This is what is, when is defense offensive? <laughs> now, I know that some coaches say the best uh, offense is a good defense. And watching the uh, basketball playoffs, and I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, uh, a fan of Golden State Warriors. You too? <laughs> I think maybe it's because my, my grandchildren love Steph Curry. They just, he, he's become their role model and they're learning how to shoot baskets. And, and, and I love the offense. I mean, they're fast. They, I mean, it makes me tired just watching them, but they're accurate and they're passing and, and they come up with these trick shots and they're halfway falling through the, through the air and they're flipping the ball with their left hand and it bounces off the board into the basket. And I'm going, hey. <laughs> and every once in a while, Jen gets mad at me. She says, what was that about? <laughs> you know, going, oh, it was a brilliant play, you know, and I, I'm sitting there. But I know that if you want to win a basketball game like that, you have to have a really good defense. So, you know, the Golden State Warriors have Draymond Green. They have Draymond Green. I mean, this guy can shoot the ball. He can shoot threes. He can shoot, you know, he can dunk it. He, he's, he's a good player, but he is one of the best defensive players around. And when they put him on another player, he just makes their life miserable. And he just goes after them. He's got this, this aggressiveness in, in defense that helps the whole team uh, manage to overcome I think last week it was 20 points. They were down in the first half, and they come back and win the game. I'm going, it was the defense that helped them along with a healthy offense. But that's not quite the same as saying it's offensive. You know, when we say that something is offensive, we're almost thinking it's negative. But actually, offensive is something that's in action. So I take a look at the defense that Jesus put up in his uh, court case in front of Pilate. What kind of a defense did he have? He was silent, wasn't he? I mean, he doesn't say anything. They passed judgment on him. They passed judgment on him and thinking that they're way ahead of the game. They condemn him to death and he's led, the Bible says, like a lamb to slaughter. What kind of a defense is that? <laughs> it's because his defense is not just an offense. It's offensive to the devil. And when he goes to that cross, his not saying a word in front of Pilate to defend himself or God's honor or anything else becomes the downfall of sin. It becomes the destruction, the destruction of death, and it is the end of the devil's authority and power. You see, something happens when Jesus goes on the offensive. 
when he's on the offensive, he is going to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he does. It doesn't look like it when he stands up because you're saying, well, wait a minute. He, he didn't have a good defense. You're wrong. His defense was the best. His ability to forgive those who sinned against him and continues to forgive those who sin against him is the greatest offense. His defense is offensive to the enemy. His defense is offensive to the devil. His defense is offensive to the proud. His defense is offensive to the sinner. His defense is offensive. <laughs> Interesting way to look at it, isn't it? Well, the reason why I'm picking up on this is because of our text. And, and the text is a fascinating one to me because when I sit down and look at Acts chapter 11, after we spent the last two weeks looking at Acts chapter 10, that's right, right? You, you go from 10 to 11, at least I do anyway. And, <laughs> and, and I'm going to read 11, and we're going to find out that there are some similarities to chapter 10. It starts off like this. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, or they criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And everything was drawn back up into the sky. Behold, at that moment, three men appeared before the house in which we were staying having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings, without complaint, without, without a doubt. And these six brethren here, these six guys here standing right here with me, they also went with me and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa, and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. For he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God, therefore, gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I 
that I could stand in God's way. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Father, bless your word to our understanding this morning. Well, the first thing after I read this, first question that comes to my mind is why spend a whole chapter going through something and then repeating it all in the next chapter? What's the use in that? <laughs> I mean, we already read it last week, right? <laughs> we've, we've been spending time working on it. We, we've gone through all this, so why, why has this come up again? This is strange. And, and so that's the first thing. And not only is that strange, but the first verse makes it even stranger. Because it says here that the apostles and the brethren, that means the brothers and sisters, who were throughout Judea, throughout Judea. See, Caesarea is sort of to the, it's right on the coast. It's, it's uh, to the west of Samaria and uh, uh, Philip has gone there, and we've seen God move. He's poured out his spirit upon the, the church in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. We've seen all this activity so far in, in these areas uh, surrounding Jerusalem. And it says here that the brothers and sisters and the apostles who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. They've already got it. They already know it. By the time Peter gets back to Jerusalem, there's something going on inside of him. He is discovering something that he never thought was possible. He had grown up in the situation where he understood that the Jews had been ordained by God and were a special people, the apple of God's eye, and he had protected them and brought them up out of Egypt. He had been with them and worked signs and wonders, and they were called upon to maintain their relationship both to God's law and to the temple of God to look for the Messiah who is going to come. Now this is what all of them had grown up with. They had learned much of the, of the uh, laws of God as children, learned to repeat it. They had, had learned, memorized it. They, this was happening throughout all of Judea. They had a bit of a, a problem with Samaritans. They didn't like them. They worshiped God in another mountain, but they were sort of brethren, you know? I mean, they, they sort of related. It was, they were, they were the... They were the Methodists to the Baptists, maybe, or <laughs> the Presbyterians, you know. I mean, uh, I mean they're, they're okay, but they're not Baptists, you know. <laughs> and so here you've, got, here you've got that kind of a situation, but suddenly there are people that worship idols. And they don't just worship one or two idols, they worship tons of idols. Sort of like going to India where they have over three million gods. I don't know how you 
know which gods you're worshiping when and where. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, cows walking down the, 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 the highways, you have to stop for a cow because they're holy. You know, so the cows rule the roads. Or we were going up into the mountains into the Himalayas in a bus and, and the monkeys come jumping out at you. And if you don't feed the monkeys, they will attack you. So the monkeys must be gods. You know, I'm sitting there going, this is, this is ridiculous. I, I, I'm struggling to understand that. But, you know, if you're coming from a situation where you believe there's only one God who has revealed himself, and, and this is what we have to do. We have to protect his honor. We have to separate ourselves from the others. We can't eat the food that's been sacrificed to these idols. We don't participate in temple prostitution. We're not involved in all these things that the Romans and the Greeks do. We serve the one true God who created heaven and earth. And now, there's a slight division between this Jewish community. Some say we're looking for the Messiah, and others say the Messiah has come and we know his name. His name is Jesus. He was raised from the dead. He's alive. Now, we're still Jews. The whole group is still Jews, see? And they're still all looking at the laws of God. They're still obeying the festivals. They're still holding to the traditions there's not this new religion. It's not that somebody's being converted from Judaism to Christianity. It's that we are Jews who believe that Jesus is the way and he is the one who has called us and, and, and he's, he's the fulfillment of all that's in the Old Testament. So that, you know, that's, that's fine. We're, we're still all Jews. But now... The brothers and the apostles who had heard Jesus say that you're going to take this from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, they're sitting there trying to understand this. They're scratching their heads. They're saying, well, the Gentiles now have received the word of God. Peter is struggling with his understanding. You see, he, he, he's coming out of all of this tradition. And so when this sheet comes down and the voice says, rise and kill, he's saying, no, I, I don't eat unholy things. I, I don't eat shrimp. I don't eat, you know, deer. I'm not. <laughs> he wouldn't make a very good West Pender guy, would he? <laughs> I mean, he, he's sitting there going, I, I, don't, I don't eat that stuff. I've never let anything that's unclean or unholy come into my mouth. He's holding to the traditions. You see, you see the tradition that they had there to make themselves separate from the others was to maintain their relationship with God. And so they, they didn't eat with the Gentiles who ate all kinds of stuff, including blood and, you know, I guess in, in Britain, they eat black pudding, you know. <laughs> People actually like it, you know. And here's, here's Peter. The voice says, don't call unholy or unclean what I have cleansed. 
and he's trying to understand what in the world is this vision about when three men knock on the door calling his name, who have no idea who he is, saying that the angel appeared and I've got to go. Now, when he gets back to Jerusalem, the second verse here says, even though the, the brothers and sisters and the apostles had heard about this, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Those who were circumcised criticized him. That's an interesting thing. They're not sitting there saying, we don't like that the Gentiles heard the word of God. That's not what they're taking issue with. But they are accusing him of having gone into the house of a Roman soldier, meeting with his family, staying there for several days, and having fellowship and eating with them what was not considered to be holy. They were violating the very things that separated them from the Gentiles to make them the righteous ones of God, the ones who inherited the promises of God, and they are accusing him, saying we don't have a problem with Gentiles coming to the Lord, but let them come first to become Jews. Let them be proselytes. Let them get circumcised. And then <laughs> let them have all the benefits of being a Jew and a Christian or a Jew and a follower of the Messiah. See, their, their issue is with their mentality their understanding of how do we become a follower of the Messiah. And here is, is Peter going through a major transition that's not just happening in a moment's time, but it's happening step by step. He was there when Jesus said it's going to happen in Jerusalem. You wait in Jerusalem till you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but not many days hence you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they were there when it happened. And there was 120 of them. And that became over 3,120. And then there was another 5,000 added to them. So all of Jerusalem was being filled with the life that God was giving to the people who were believing in Jesus. They were experiencing God's forgiveness. They were experiencing this move of God. Then it started happening in Samaria. I mean, Philip was up in Samaria, and Peter went up there with John, and they started putting their hands on people, and they were getting filled with the Spirit. And now this is expanding. He's down there in Joppa, where he's just helped a lame man be healed, and he raised Dorcas from the dead, and suddenly he has, has this vision, what in the world does it mean? So he's struggling to see the ever-expanding move of the Holy Spirit and of the life that God is giving to people. It's expanding, it's growing, <laughs> and he's sitting there trying to understand what it means. Now he comes back to Jerusalem, and those who are circumcised stand up and are calling him into account. They are 
criticizing him. They are saying to him, they're doing exactly what God told him not to do. He said, you go with them. You don't complain. You don't, <laughs> you don't doubt. You just, you go with them. God spoke to him directly by his spirit. You, you go. I, I mean, he's, he's walking. He has no idea what's going on. Two days he walks to get to Caesarea, gets there, and suddenly while he is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles who have nothing to do with the laws of God or the traditions of the Jews or anybody else. They could have been Americans for all he knew. <laughs> Just think about it. It's that different, you know? And so here, here is, is Peter who's trying to understand what is God doing. The fascinating, the fascinating thing about this whole event I actually wrote this down. Luke Johnson wrote this. He said, For a Jew to eat without attending to ritual purity or to dietary regulations meant loss of identity. For the entire rationale for such regulations was the holiness, that is the separateness, of this people based on the commandments of God. So here he is giving a defense his defense to the circumcised believers in Jerusalem. And when he's giving his defense, he goes back and goes over this whole event that transpired. This is now not for the, the readers that Luke is writing to, like us, who are reading it for the first time in, in, in Acts chapter 10. He's reading this to the the circumcised people, and we're going to see later on that this has continued to be not only during the Acts of the Apostles, an issue that's going to come up again later on, but it's going to be a major issue that is going to be addressed in the letters that Paul writes to the various churches. The whole concept of who can be saved, the whole understanding of what can God do that doesn't seem to fit into our traditions or our understanding or our way of thinking? And he comes up with this fascinating little word here. He, he wants everybody to understand that whatever happened there, he was responding to a divine initiative. He's not responding to his desire to do things. It is God who is leading him all the way. He is reluctant in what he's doing, but he cannot deny that God has taken the initiative in each one of these steps. And finally, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon them in the same way that he had experienced it at Pentecost, his response is, who can deny that these people who have believed in Jesus as the Messiah should not be included in the promises of God and all the blessings of God and the grace of God. Who can exclude them? That's the question. So when we're looking here at why is there repetition, we've seen the problem, and the problem is that those of the circumcision are concerned with Peter and his companions and the problem of whether or not they're becoming Jews or not. And this is a major transition. I mean, he's going through, Peter's going through a major issue. Having grown up as a Jew, 
and having learned everything as a Jew, God seems to be expanding this to go beyond just Judea, Samaria, and that region of the world, and is opening up the gates, tearing down the walls of separation, and he's allowing this not to just travel throughout the known world, but throughout all of known time, and that the reproduction and the multiplication of the life of Jesus is beginning to happen, whether people are Jewish or not, or whether they have understood all the laws of Judaism or not. I doubt that any of us have understood all the laws of Judaism, and yet God comes to meet with those who will repent of their sins and will call upon the name of the Lord. He will save them. One of the most exciting things is that they realize that there is a, a, a major difference that's starting to happen as God is pouring out His Spirit to draw people together under his love and his care and his concern. And he doesn't seem to see all the differences. He doesn't care whether somebody is a Republican or whether they're Democrat. I heard a Republican once get up in a church and said to, said to everybody, he said, I can't believe that you can be a Democrat and be a Christian at the same time. <laughs> uh, then imagine my surprise when I run into a very noble Democrat who said, I can't believe that anybody can be a Republican and a Christian at the same time. You know what, I doubt that God is either Republican or Democrat. <laughs> I think he's kind of like Lord of all, the King of Kings, <laughs> the ruler, the supreme judge. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> this is not about democracy. This is about obedience to Jesus. Suddenly, there's an entirely different understanding that's starting to take place that God can actually move amongst people that are not like us. <laughs> I know it's hard. When, when I first went to Germany after I'd gotten saved and, and, and I ran in, to Christians who had had the same experience that I had had, and God didn't speak English to them because I only heard the voice of God in English, <laughs> and yet they had met the same Jesus? Imagine what that was like when I got into some strange languages, <laughs> and there are a lot of strange languages in this world. Uh, there was this m movie that some guys made about a Coke bottle falling out of, the, uh, um, uh, out of an airplane into the Kalahari Desert. And this language where people just click, that's supposedly a language, and <laughs> they, they pick up this bottle and they think it's a gift from the gods and it's a, it's a brilliant misunderstanding of culture and communication. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant movie. And uh, <laughs> very simple. It's not a big production or anything, but it, it was, it's really good. And then we were in, in, in Vintuk, which is the capital of Namibia, and my wife and daughter were at the post office going to get some stamps, and they stood behind people who spoke that way. <laughs> I mean, it really is a language. <laughs> and and they're, they're sitting there. I mean, can God actually save people like that? 
What happens if it's not just a language barrier? What happens if it's a cultural barrier? Did you know that throughout Africa, there's a lot of prejudice between black tribes? I mean, deadly prejudice. <laughs> and, and then when you get into areas where, where there are Muslims that just keep attacking, as in the northern sections of Nigeria and into Niger up into the Sahara Desert, they, they massacre Christians there. And, and then somebody wants to tell me that Jesus loves them? Our, our daughter Naomi tells the story of, of a girl in Alabama. She was, a, she was teaching, it was one of her students, wasn't it? Who uh, she witnessed to, or her, it was a friend, a Chinese friend, and, and she was witnessing to her and she, she understood the gospel. And finally, she says, what's stopping you from, from becoming a Christian? What's stopping you from receiving Jesus? She says, I can't understand why God would love the Japanese. Wow. Just because of the wars and in the Second World War, the horrible things the Japanese did to the Chinese. And, and, and she had to break through a barrier of how can God really do something with people like that. I look at the sequence of these events. There's a reason why he goes through the sequence. He goes through it in, in sharing about the visions, the command, the witnesses that came with him, the six guys that were with him again in Jerusalem that cannot deny all that's been going on. This was not our doing. We did not do this. This is something that God is about, that God is doing, that comes to this. In verse 17, well, what I read was this. It, it says here uh, in, in, in verse 17, it says, If God therefore gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And that word probably would come across stronger if we listened to it this way. Was I powerful enough to prevent God? Think about that. Was I powerful enough that I could do anything to stop God? Can I force God to think the way that I think? Can I make God do everything the way I want to have it done? Who am I to prevent God? At that point, they all go silent because he's made his defense by saying, this is a divine initiative. I am not responsible. 
When God sets out to save people from their sins, He is the ruler, the judge, the Lord of all, and He has the right to do what He wants to do with those that He has created. And you are God's creature. And God loves you. He cares about you. He's not sitting in heaven thinking up ways to make life miserable for you. He's looking at you to say, I want my grace to be sufficient for you in whatever you're going through right now. I want you to understand that my love for you is not the way people love, which is willy-nilly and it's only something that, that, that deals with sex. When my love comes, it is sure and it is forever and it is, it is a foundation upon which you can base your life. I want you to understand that the love of God is greater than the love of people. And what we need in the great love of God that he has for each one of us, first of all, is to be forgiven. And it requires a bit of strength to stand up and say, Lord, this is me. This is who I am. And I don't deserve what you're offering me. And yet, he died for you. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. How does this story that we've just gone over again affect us? I remember first time I went to Uganda and was welcomed by uh, the Bishop of Soroti. The Bishop of Soroti, wonderful, wonderful brother in the Lord, stood tall, taller than me, and very gentle, very gentle man had a love for his people. It was just amazing, you know. And they in Uganda had gone through a terrible time where several bishops like Bishop Festo Kivangeri had to flee for his life. The archbishop was shot by Idi Amin while he was praying for him. I mean, there, there were over 300,000 Christians that were murdered during Idi Amin's time in Uganda. 600,000 people were killed. All the foreigners were sent out of the land, and I was one of the first white men to go back up into the northeast section of Uganda. They, they just hadn't seen a white person there, you know. The kids would come running up and, and go like that. Does it wash off? Can you wash it off? <laughs> they, they just hadn't seen white skin, you know. <laughs> and and this, this bishop stood tall. He loved his people. When I would be preaching, he would go in and grab a few kids and, and just take them out go around the side of the building and give them clothes that we had brought or food. and He, he just knew who needed it, and he would go get, get them and, and go give. I mean, the guy was brilliant. He knew how to work with his people. But he stood there with a purple shirt and a collar, and for the life of me, he looked like an Anglican bishop in England. 
<laughs> and we'd go into the cathedral and the service was run exactly like a service was run back in St. Paul's Cathedral. I, I'm, except that the people laughed at my jokes when I preached. I mean, they thought that was funny. So I, I was happy. But in, in, in the, you know, when we were in the sanctuary, you wouldn't have known that there was any difference between an Anglican church out in the jungles of, <laughs> of Uganda or on the busy streets of London. When we left the building, the people brought out their little thumb pianos, they got their drums, and boy, did they ever dance without moving their feet because there was too much dust. So they didn't move their feet, but everything else was moving and they were worshiping and praising God. I'm going, ooh, that's different. I mean, it was just radically different. You don't see that in any Anglican cathedral. It doesn't happen. <laughs> And so I'm sitting there looking at all of this and I'm wondering how does the gospel translate? Did they have to bring British traditions to Africa in order to reach people with the gospel? Think about this for just, just a minute. When, when Hudson Taylor went to China one of the reasons why the former missionaries were so unsuccessful is that they tried to make them Westerners first in their dress, to make them Westerners in their habits, in the way that they ate. They tried to make them abide by their traditions before they shared the gospel with them. And they thought if we're going to become a Christian, we're going to be Western in our whole makeup of life. But Hudson Taylor came in and he said, listen, we have to become Chinese in everything except sin. We don't have to sin. Chinese don't have to sin. And so he grew his hair. He put on uh, uh, the Chinese garments and, and then he ended up eating their food and he became one of them and broke through the barriers of culture to bring the living word of the living God to a people who had no idea about Jesus. When we have traveled the world, we've come to places where the gospel in each culture is so radically different. You know, you go to a little, little, uh, Storeside Church out in a, in a slum district in, in uh, southern Brazil. And you have a little church with six people sitting in it. And then they have towers, towers of loudspeakers that they set up in front of their little storefront. And when they preach, the whole neighborhood hears it. And if you've got three or four of those churches, it's just a mess. <laughs> and you're walking by going, oh my goodness. But that's the way that they do it been in the world, people have a different way in which they like to worship God and they express it in the traditions that they've grown up in and they've understood. Amazingly, it's the same Jesus that touches their lives. It's the same Jesus who forgives their sin, sets them free from the lusts of the world, and gives them a hope of glory. <laughs> I was talking to 
lady from Union Chapel Missionary Baptist Church out here last night. I said, I said, I said, what's the problem that we have in becoming unified? And she said, it was the walls of the buildings that we built. And that people have their own culture within that building. And then we fail to interact with one another to learn how to love one another the way that Jesus wants us to love one another. We have fears of what others think and how others act. Yesterday was a major breakthrough. Yesterday was an amazing time when Christians who were Hispanic and black and white came together. Lord, do more, do more. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, that you love one another. It may start in us learning how to love one another sitting in these pews. <laughs> That's a starting place. But he didn't say, I want you to love one another in your own little group. See, the, the gospel is not just for our group. The word of God is not just for our tradition. And we've all got our traditions. We've all got them. That's not, that's not the issue. The issue is how can I look and see the love that God has for people who are not like me? Whether they come through those doors or don't come through those doors, the issue is that God has empowered us with his love and his life to encounter whoever wants to come to Jesus. And our lives are a witness for him. How we live, how we speak, how we behave towards one another, the way that we honor one another are all things that everybody else observes around about us. On the mission field, we were very conscious of that because we stood out like a sore thumb. You know, if you're the only white person in, in the whole congregation, <laughs> guess what? People are looking at you. Your life is going to be telling them something. Our friends who were missionaries in Peshawar, Pakistan, which was the... the, the the fountainhead of the, of the Taliban movement. <laughs> they had a gatekeeper. I'm sure I've told this story here, but they had a gatekeeper who was a strong Muslim. And one day after a couple of years, he came up to them. He says, I want you to tell me about your Jesus. And he leads them to the Lord. And afterwards he asks them, why now? He said, well, I've been going through your garbage and I've discovered by going through your garbage and taking your garbage out that you are who you say you are. And I need to know that, Jesus. <laughs> wow. By examining the garbage, he was able to see that their life and their words were the same. I... I wonder, I wonder whether we come to the point ourselves where we understand that it's not, 
just that God loves those people. He loves me. He really loves me. He doesn't want to destroy me. He wants to transform me into the person that can spend eternity with him. Incredible, huh? He wants to change us into the image of his son. His love for us knows no limits and no bounds. He's going to look beyond what's on the outside and look on the inside. Let me cleanse you of that. Let me transform your thinking on that. It's not preacher standing up and telling you how to live and where to go and what to do with your life. It's Jesus coming in his gentle way that starts to grab a hold of you and your life is so filled with his presence that you don't want anything to separate you from him. And in that moment, you realize that even the culture we're in can have its own barriers and limitations to understanding who God is. That's just what Peter went through. His understanding of who God was was being changed step by step through this vision and this encounter and meeting this guy and coming back to Jerusalem. Suddenly his his mind is exploding with the vast greatness and glory and the impact that Jesus wants to have on this world. And because of his initial movement back then, those of us sitting here today can benefit from what happened back in that day and can receive the same life that Jesus gave to them. Father, we want to thank you that as we look at the words of God, does not want to exclude us, whoever we are. He's not looking at the color of our skin. He's not looking as to whether we're male or female. He's not looking at whether we're rich or poor. He's not looking at whether we're Jew or Gentile. He's not looking at all the differences that we find in this life to be so important to us, but he is looking deeper into our lives to draw us into a relationship with him. And he does not want to exclude anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So this morning, Lord Jesus, if anybody here within the hearing of my voice, whether they're listening online, whether they're listening to the podcast, whether they're sitting here, wherever you are, if God is touching your life, repent, turn away, receive His forgiveness, receive His goodness, receive His kindness, receive His grace and His strength for the time of trouble that you are in. Let Jesus touch your life right now and set you free from all the works of the devil. Let the defense that we have not be there. Just say, Lord, you know what a mess I made. And let Jesus restore, replenish, heal, and forgive. Jesus, you're able to do that better than anybody else could or can. 
We ask that you would do it here today. If you don't know that personal relationship with Jesus, or if you did at one time and you need to renew your life with Jesus, he doesn't want to exclude you from this life. Take a step of faith, will you? Come down here and let us pray with you. Move out of your seat and come down here. We're going to sing a final hymn, but as we do that, would you take, take a step to come to Jesus?